uh, all of us who are really under the threat now of this unpredictable uh, regime uh, to take action short of armed conflict. Which unpredictable regime are we talking about? Just ask it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Noting. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM people-powered radio in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9 FM. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us again today. Uh, coming up, among, among many other things, it is Election Day on Tuesday in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, the first uh, and potentially last, depending on how it goes, round of voting uh, to fill the U.S. House seat of Republican Congressman Tom Price, who is now Donald Trump's controversial and scandal-plagued, interest-conflicted uh, health and human services director, uh, Tom Price, after a, a slim loss by Democrats for another vacant congressional seat just last week in a very Republican district of Kansas. Are the odds any better this week for Democrats in the heavily Republican, if somewhat less so, 6th congressional district in Georgia? Uh, we'll talk about that with Jim Dean, president of Democracy for America. He will join us shortly on that. And whether the Democratic Party is taking this race a bit more seriously in Georgia than than critics, including Dean, uh, charged uh, that uh, Democrats regarded last week's race in Kansas. A and by the way, there's another potentially winnable congressional seat for Democrats uh, that will have another special election for the U.S. House in May as well. That one is in Montana. So we will speak to Jim Dean, brother of former presidential candidate and former DNC chair Howard Dean, about all of that shortly. And former governor of Vermont from uh, way back when. That Howard Dean was. Was, Correct. Yes. That's right. So we'll talk about all that shortly. That, of course, is Desi Doyen. She'll be with us uh, throughout, as usual. <laughs> how, how are you holding up today? Uh, it's all right. I'm glad we have not launched yet into thermonuclear war. 
That's just me, not I guess. Yet. But not, not yet. yet. <laughs> it was a, a tense weekend. I'll get to that in a moment. But I want to start with some polling just out today from Gallup's daily pr- tracking poll because it all sort of plays together here. Uh, Gallup uh, surveys about a thousand people every day for changes in their opinions on Donald Trump and much more. Well, uh, Gallup finds today that uh, Donald Trump's image among Americans as someone who keeps his promises has faded, uh, faded big time, bigly in the uh, first (laughs) two months of his presidency, falling from 62 percent in February to 45 percent in April. A pretty huge drop, 17 point drop in whether Americans see Trump as someone who has who who keeps his promises from 62 to 45 in uh, from just February to April. Uh, he's also uh, flagged uh, his his ratings have dropped off on whether uh, the American people believe he's a strong and decisive leader. That is off by seven points in those two from February to April. Can he bring about the changes this country needs? That's off about seven points. Is he honest and trustworthy? Well, that didn't start very well. That started in February at around 42. It's now down to 36, so that's off six points. Whether he cares about people like you, that's off four points. Can he manage the government effectively? Oddly enough, that's only off by three points, given uh, how ineffective he's been in his first few months. You'd think that was off by that would be off by more, but... He started in February at just 44, so I guess there's not a lot, uh, not a lot of, uh, lot, not a lot of distance to go there. Um, the uh, the biggest changes have been, uh, according to Gallup, uh, well, they write whether young or old, Democrat or Republican, male or female, Americans are less likely now than they were two months ago to think Trump keeps his promises. But the declines have been greater among subgroups that tend to be less supportive of Trump, including Democrats. Liberals, women, young adults. Uh, Among those who disapprove of Trump, 35 percent said in February that he keeps his promise. Only 11 percent say so now. Well, that's not too surprising. I mean, these are people that didn't support him anyway. It's not surprising, but that's a huge drop off. And you've got unless you're a, uh, you know, a strong Trump supporter only 11% say that he is uh, able and willing to keep his promises at this point. So, uh, And already he was the first elected president in Gallup polling history to receive an initial job approval rating below the majority level, and he has yet to come close to surpassing that uh, 50% mark. So I-, I wanted to start with that polling because it seems that uh, clear, obviously Donald Trump is a narcissist, Uh, Very concerned, seemingly, about his approval ratings or lack thereof uh, among the American people. And and it's when presidents like Trump see their approval ratings starting to flag that they become the most dangerous. We've seen a, a reflection of that, no doubt, in his recent unlawful, unconstitutional, unauthorized by Congress uh, strikes against Syria with cruise missiles. Uh, We saw his use for the first time ever in a conflict of the largest non-nuclear bomb ever used by the U.S. in, uh, I guess, by anyone in the world, now that I think about it, in in conflict in Afghanistan last week. And, of course, his saber rattling in North Korea that put the globe on pins and needles all weekend long. So with North Korea's uh, biggest holiday 
Celebrating the birthday of the nation's founding leader, Kim Il-sung, over the weekend, we had warned you last week, we talked about this, uh, that there could be a nuclear weapon test on Saturday during that uh, during that national celebration in North Korea. And with Donald Trump suggesting a potential military strike in return, should Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader and the grandson of uh, its founding leader, if they dared to test a nuclear weapon. Well, the tense weekend began with massive U.S. warships arriving near the Korean peninsula. The U.S. had warned that another nuclear weapons test, as many have been anticipating in North Korea, would somehow give the U.S. the right to strike the isolated sovereign nation, either preemptively beforehand or in its aftermath. Well, with those tensions very high over the weekend and all eyes on North Korea, there was, in fact, a nuclear test on Saturday after all. According to The Hill, scientists say they have successfully carried out an initial test flight for an improved version of a nuclear bomb that has been in the U.S. arsenal for decades. The AP reported on Saturday that Sandia National Laboratories conducted a test last month to assess the non-nuclear capabilities of the B-6112. As part of the test, an F-16 dropped an inert version of the weapon over a Nevada desert. And Shower, the director of the lab's Stockpile Resource Center, said it's great to see all the things come together, the weapon design, the test preparation, the aircraft, the range, and the people who made it happen. Work on the B-6112 has been going on for years. The AP notes, uh, while government officials characterize the latest tests with mock versions of the bomb as vital to re, uh, refurbishing efforts when it comes to the U.S. nuclear arsenal. The scientists will conduct additional test flights, and the first batch of the weapon is expected to be finished by 2020, according to AP. So I guess it's okay for us In the U.S., we can test all the nuclear weapons uh, we want, apparently, but no one else can do that. Right. That's right. We get to decide. We get to do what we want. That's the absurdity of it. We get to decide as a nation that nobody else gets to do this, which is kind of crazy. But, yeah, we get to do it, I guess, because, you know, we're safe. We can trust us. By the way, we're the first and only uh, nation to ever actually use a nuclear weapon in a conflict. Just saying. North Korea, however, uh, did reportedly attempt to fire, if not a nuclear uh, a nuclear weapon over the weekend. They did attempt to fire a ballistic missile on Sunday morning. That test missile reportedly blew up at launch for some reason. More on that in a moment. The, uh, the failed launch was the latest in a string of test failures. There's been a bunch of them by North Korea of late. Uh, but the action did not, I'm happy to say, so far anyway, bring a military response from the U.S. On Sunday, Donald Trump's new national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster, was on ABC's This Week and said the U.S. would prefer to take action short of an armed conflict. The president has made clear that he will not accept the United States and its allies and partners in the region being under threat from this hostile regime uh, with with nuclear weapons. So it's time for us to undertake all actions we can, short of a military option, to try to resolve this peacefully. So in the coming uh, weeks, months, uh, I think there's a great opportunity for all of us, uh, all of us who are really under the threat now of this unpredictable uh, regime, 
uh, to take action short of armed conflict so we can avoid the worst. So he's uh, that unpredictable regime. We'll go ahead and assume he's talking about North <laughs> Korea there. I know. When I first heard that, I thought, wait, what? Yeah, I know. I'm uh, so glad to hear they're going that they're that they're willing and interested and fighting to take uh, efforts short of an armed conflict. That was not what we heard going into the weekend when they kept repeating that all options were on the table. Vice President Mike Pence, who arrived uh, in Seoul over the uh, over the weekend to kick off a 10 day visit to the region, described the failed launch on Sunday morning uh, by North Korea as a provocation. Uh, as we noted last week, North Korea has regarded Donald Trump's aggressive tweets, as well as the strike group that is now uh, stationed off the North, uh, off the uh, Korean Peninsula. Strike group, uh, Navy strike group, USS Carl Vinson. Um, North Korea has described that as a provocation as well, which they reserve the right to respond to. Vowing to test their ballistic missiles or their nuclear weapons at a quantity and uh, time of their own choosing. In the New York Times coverage of the failed missile launch over the weekend, there was this noteworthy passage. And I find it noteworthy because you got McMaster's talking about taking efforts short of uh, military action. And now you've got here's how Times describes this. North Korea launched a ballistic missile Sunday morning from near its submarine base in Sinpo on its east coast. But the launch was the latest in a series of failures, a series of failures just after liftoff according to American and South Korean military officials. The timing was a deep embarrassment for North uh, for the North leader, Kim Jong-un, because it uh, the missile appeared to have been launched to show off his daring as a fleet of American warships approached the country to deter provocations. The, mil- the missile blew up almost immediately, and the type of missile involved is still being assessed. But the Times says, over the past three years, a covert war over the missile program has broken out between North Korea and the U.S. As the North's skills grew, President Barack Obama ordered a surge in strikes against the missile launches. This is according to the New York Times, including uh, through electronic warfare techniques. It's unclear how successful the program has so far been because it's almost impossible to tell whether any individual launch failed because of sabotage, faulty engineering, or just bad luck, but the North's launch failure rate has been extraordinarily high since Mr. Obama first accelerated the program. In in an unusually worded statement that left hanging the question of whether the U.S. played any role in the latest launch failure, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said over the weekend, quote, the president and his military team are aware of North Korea's most recent unsuccessful missile launch. The president has no further comment. So what happened over the weekend? Did uh, some sort of cyber attack by the U.S. that was ordered by uh, Barack Obama months ago, years ago, I should say, three years ago, uh, did that uh, come into play over the weekend? I don't know. Do we need to say thanks, Obama, (laughs) for uh, stopping the launch over the weekend? Uh, Hard to know uh, if the U.S. has, in fact, hacked the North Korean uh, weapon systems in some way. That'd be good. I'd be in favor of that, I guess. At least uh, it's preferable to an all-out military assault in the region. On Sunday uh, on Meet the Press on NBC, Department of Homeland Security Secretary General John Kelly suggested that the real threat, at least to the U.S., is on the cyber front. 
rather than on the military front, or as he calls it, a kinetic threat is less likely than a cyber threat. Uh, in the case of North Korea, you know, a kinetic threat against the United States right now I don't think is, is likely, but certainly a cyber threat. Mm -hmm. um, so we would raise uh, various uh, threat levels in the event that uh, um, something happened and, and, uh, and we uh, felt as though that there was a, a, possible, you know, a possible threat. You always want to caution on the side of, uh, or come down on the side of caution. So we're not yet at military war. But, or at least, uh, you at least know, not according to our military. As he calls it, kinetic yeah. uh, uh, war. Uh, but we may be at cyber war. I don't know. It's unclear what's happening. Uh, Trump was on Fox News today. He was asked if he had ruled out a military strike at this point, And he took the opportunity to take a shot at both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. You'll notice here in this clip, there's no word about George W. Bush on whose watch North Korea actually successfully built these nuclear bombs that they are now interested in testing. That after Bush had abandoned Clinton's policies on North Korea, which had helped to keep them from building a nuclear weapon during Clinton's presidency. In any event, here's president on Fox News today. The vice president is in Asia doing the four-stop tour, and he said basically the U.S. is running out of patience, clearly a message to North Korea. You have a Navy fleet that is sent into the Sea of Japan right now. Have you ruled out a military strike? I don't want to telegraph what I'm doing or what I'm thinking. Uh, I'm not like other administrations where they say we're going to do this in four weeks and that doesn't work that way. We'll see what happens. I hope things work out well. I hope there's going to be peace. But, you know, they've been talking with this gentleman for a long time. You read Clinton's book. He said, Oh, we made such a great peace deal, and it was a joke. You look at uh, different things over the years with President Obama. Everybody has been outplayed. Uh, they've all been outplayed by this gentleman, and we'll see what happens. But I just don't telegraph my moves. He was here. He doesn't telegraph his moves, whether he knows what his moves are, whether they are, you know, uh, uh, cyber defenses. I don't know. Unclear what's happening. Unclear what did or didn't happen over the weekend. But between Trump's flagging poll numbers and the pins and needles that he's placed the world on over the weekend, voters may have more interest than ever right now in sending Donald Trump a message. And voters near Atlanta will have exactly that chance to do so on Tuesday. Will they? We'll see. And has the Democratic uh, National Democratic Party in any event learned anything since last week's narrow loss in a special election for the U.S. House in Kansas? That story is next with Jim Dean of Democracy for America joining me next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. 
Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A day ahead of a high-profile special election in Georgia on Tuesday, President Donald Trump inserted himself in the race with a sharp attack on the top Democratic candidate, according to NBC News. On Twitter Monday, Trump criticized 30-year-old Democrat John Ossoff, who is said to be leading a crowded field of candidates in the, in the race to replace former Congressman Tom Price, who stepped down to become the president's secretary of health and human services. Ossoff is currently far ahead of all of the other candidates in the race. I think there's some 18 in all, including a bunch of Republican candidates in a split field. And um, they are all hoping to make it to a potential runoff election in June. Actually, Ossoff is hoping we don't even have to go to a runoff election in June. Get to that in a moment. Trump tweeted today, the super liberal Democrat in the Georgia congressional district, he misspelled congressional, in the Georgia congressional race tomorrow, wants to protect criminals, allow illegal immigration, and raise taxes. Ossoff responded in kind with a statement saying that while I'm glad the president is interested in the race, he is misinformed. I'm focused on bringing fresh leadership, accountability and bipartisan problem solving to Washington to cut wasteful spending and grow Metro Atlanta's economy into the Silicon Valley of the South. Ossoff is hoping to break 50 percent in Tuesday's all-party primary. If he falls short of that threshold but still comes in first... The Democrat will face off against the second-place finisher, who will most likely be one of the Republicans running in a, uh, in a June runoff. If there's a runoff, Ossoff would likely be seen as the underdog in a one-on-one -on -one race with a Republican in the longtime heavily Republican district in the suburbs of Atlanta. Now, this is the same district that former Republican Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich represented in Congress for about two decades. Price who held the seat for about 10 years before uh, winning it again last November by more than 30 points, outpolled Donald Trump in the district. Bigly, as uh, Trump might say. Mitt Romney had won that district by some 20 points back in 2012, but Trump barely won Georgia's 6th district by just over a point last November, making the seat vulnerable to a potential Democratic takeover as Trump's popularity continues to flag Recent polling shows Ossoff running far ahead of the rest of the pack, but still several percentage points below the 50 percent threshold. So Tuesday's election could be key for Democrats if they wish to pull off an upset victory. It's also worth noting here, as we have been doing over the past week or two, that the Center for Elections at Kennesaw State University, which does all of the programming for Georgia's e-poll books and 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, the, the systems that are still shamefully used across the entire state since 2002, even though they've been hacked multiple times over and over again. Uh, that uh, election center, Kennesaw, was itself said to have been hacked in early March. Now, the FBI was called in to investigate the hack there. It's unclear what was done to the e-voting systems or the records of some seven and a half million voters in the uh, in the state voter database at Kennesaw. Computer scientists and e-voting experts at VerifiedVoting.org have called on Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to make paper ballots available to voters in light of the hack, but he has refused. And so once again, whatever the results are, 
of these 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems reported on Tuesday night will have to be the final results, accurate or otherwise. But Tuesday's special election in Georgia comes on the heels of a loss for Democrats in a U.S. House special election in Kansas last Tuesday, though that one was much closer than initially expected, with Democratic candidate James Thompson reportedly losing by just under eight points in the race. But it's a district that Donald Trump had won by some 27 points last November. So that's a nearly 20-point swing in favor of Democrats in the very right-wing Kansas district, which is also home to the Koch brothers' uh, Coke Industries, by the way. But it was not enough to win. Uh, as, uh, as some Democrats see it, it may be uh, a good sign, nonetheless, uh, for Georgia's 6th district, where Trump was not nearly as popular last November with that one-and-a-half-point uh, victory there. Um, the Kansas race last week also provided reason for many Democrats and progressives to be critical of both the state Democratic Party as well as the national DNC and the DCCC, the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, for not doing enough to support a Democratic candidate with a real shot at winning the first federal election of the Trump era, particularly on the uh, sagging coattails of a very unpopular president. In a statement posted last Tuesday night after the unofficial results in Kansas came in, Jim Dean, chairman of Democracy for America, a progressive advocacy group formed in the wake of his brother Howard Dean's 2004 presidential run, hailed the amazing grassroots progressive surge in Kansas, noting that if we can make Republicans go into full-on freakout mode in a ruby-red Kansas congressional district now, we have the power to rip the gavel out of Paul Ryan's hands in November 2018. But Dean also went on to slam Democrats for failing to put resources into what might have been a winnable, even if long shot, race for Democrats in Kansas's 4th District special U.S. House election. Dean said, To the Washington Democratic insiders who wrote this race off before it began, it's time to wake up and realize that the grassroots expects this resistance effort to be waged unflinchingly in every single county and every single state across the country. While Donald Trump is threatening the safety of marginalized communities, he said Democrats need to quit the dithering and ensure that Trump and his congressional enablers feel politically unsafe in every corner of the country, said Dean in that DFA statement last Tuesday night. So have have the National Democrats learned anything since last Tuesday, much less uh, since last November? And are they stepping up now in Georgia in a district that is, at least on paper, much more winnable for Democrats than even uh, than even Kansas was here to discuss that? is Jim Dean, chair of DemocracyForAmerica.com, which was among the first of the progressive uh, grassroots groups to endorse John Ossoff in Georgia, helping to bring in a record-shattering $8.3 million for the Democrat in the first three months of the year, more than 90% of that coming from outside the district, as progressives see the contest as a proxy race against Donald Trump's presidency and maybe even a bellwether for next year's 2018 elections when the entire House will be up for election. Jim Dean, welcome to the broadcast, sir. 
Brad, thanks so much for having me on. How are you? I'm doing okay. It has been a long time since we have talked, so I'm really glad to have you back here, particularly uh, after what happened in Kansas and before what is about to happen in Georgia. So before we get to Georgia, Jim, uh, and and the prospects for John Ossoff as uh, voters head to the polls, let's talk about Kansas. Where did the Democrats go wrong there? As you see it, that was a pretty, uh, pretty rough statement you put out, Jim. Well, I, you know... I think we. it starts with where the Democrats went right. Uh, they went right with a great candidate who wasn't uh, uh, afraid to be what he was. Uh, he's a civil rights attorney. Uh, he's been uh, advocating uh, for marginalized communities in this district for years. Uh, he spent Election Day, by the way, doing a bunch of interviews on Spanish-language radio and uh, a couple of Passover seders and uh, running around and basically celebrating the diversity of this district because there's plenty of it there. Uh, and this is something that uh, we need as Democrats. To, we need candidates who stand up uh, for not only our progressive values, but uh, for the values of the party as a whole. So, uh, yeah, on one level, uh, sure, I was a little cranked up about the fact that the party uh, didn't exactly put any resources or a whole lot of resources into this race. Uh, but more importantly, I was more cranked up about the fact that the party was not embracing a candidate like this, and they weren't doing it just because it's a red district and they're afraid that they're going to be criticized uh, by Republicans, which is just silly. And so, uh, you know, it's time that we stood up for what we are. When we do, we win, and especially at a time like this, when so many, even the Trump voters, are being marginalized and know they're being marginalized, particularly by big business we ought to be in there uh, offering our hand uh, and offering up candidates like James Thompson, uh, who was absolutely terrific. And I'm hopeful that he's going to run again in 2018. Well, then what is the explanation? Why weren't the National Democrats there with such a, a, a good candidate as you see it? What went wrong? Why did, why did they decide to basically sit out of that race until the very last second? I think they came in on the last day or two. But other than that, they were nowhere to be found for months, Jim. Well, I, I'll, look, I'll give them some fairness in, in the interest of not getting this too, not getting too heavy with this. But uh, you know, this was a race that came up upon a, uh, on a lot of people, including ourselves, uh, suddenly. So uh, you know, there it wasn't like people knew about this uh, a, a lot or knew about this well ahead of time. Uh, there was a lot of last minute stuff, and we were part of that. I mean, you know, we wish we had gotten into this thing earlier than we did, which was about three weeks or two or three weeks before the election. So I'll give them a break on this. The other answers I don't know. Uh, you know, and I, I unfortunately uh, keep defaulting to this consultant culture uh, in centers of power, uh, including Washington, where, you know, they, the consultants sit there and go and pan the whole thing and say there's no way we can win. And they'll pan it unless the guy had $10 million, in which case they'd say we can win right now because they'd want to spend his money on TV. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that has cost us a ton of elections. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons that we do have these problems is because the consultants are running the party uh, and they're operating uh, really on a paradigm that doesn't exist anymore and hasn't existed for a very long time. Uh, we can play anywhere as Democrats, and we, if we get a chance to talk about Montana, uh, I can certainly explain that further. But uh, no better time than the present uh, for a new set of fresh thinking in there. And, uh, look, I think the DNC's got it. I certainly think Ben Ray Lujan of the DCCC has it. 
but we need the staff and everybody else to start getting it. Uh, and that's particularly also true for Georgia's 6th District. Do you, and we'll get, yeah, and I want to get to Georgia in a moment. Well, let's let's use that to move to Georgia. I mean, do you get any sense from your contact with folks at the national level that they have learned anything from Kansas? Are they are they doing any better in Georgia? And, and well, how do things look now for Ossoff heading into Election Day on Tuesday? Well, the, D, the DCCC has put a lot of resources into Georgia, uh, which is great. And we are thrilled with that. Uh, we're certainly thrilled with the other groups like Daily Coast and others who have raised a ton of money for this candidate. Uh, and uh, we are, are really looking at this in the sense that, you know, sure, we want to make these calls and everything, but uh, I, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Democracy in Color and a number of other like-minded groups that have been really focusing on communities of color in the district because they turn out a lot of votes here, uh, can turn out a lot of votes, uh, if they've got a seat at the table. Uh, and and at the, at the you know in terms of the political outcome or the outcome of this election, so uh, they're working very hard, and I hope that the DCCC staff is going to understand that when we do a race like this, we really start to have to go start talking to folks who we might not have talked to before, and I include myself in this, by the way, Brad. I'm no uh, expert on it, but I know that we got to start reaching out to folks who we haven't spoken to for a while. We can't just target this a small number of swing voters or mm-hmm. some weird demographic that's the flavor of the day, we got to start targeting, A, the, certainly the number one Democrats that always vote, but we got to start going after communities uh, that we haven't been spending enough time with uh, and, and putting our message out there and putting ourselves out there uh, for good or for bad. If you show up in these places, if you show up in these communities, People will come out. Uh, if you're just sending them a TV ad, you're not going to get anywhere with them. You and you mentioned uh, Daily Coast, uh, Democracy for America, and Daily Coast got on board pretty early uh, on the uh, on the Ossoff train here in Georgia. I, I think even before the National Democrats did. Why did you guys decide to to support Oss, Ossoff? Uh, I think there were several other Democrats who were also running in that first round. Why, why did Ossoff jump out at uh, at you guys at DFA as somebody who? Oh, we need to jump in and, and, and get behind here. Right. Well, he actually jumped out at us, as, uh, as he did with Daily Coast, I'm sure, as a, as a very good candidate who was spending his resources wisely, uh, even as he was amassing them, uh, you know, by, by putting in a good staff. Uh, many folks from uh, Senator Deborah Ross, or uh, Senator candidate Deborah Ross from North Carolina, are working on this campaign. She was our favorite candidate for Senate last year, even though she did not prevail. Uh, he was doing some good stuff. Uh, you know, we held back a little bit because there was also a very good uh, former legislator named Sally Harrell uh, who had thrown her hat in the ring, and we wanted to know much more about her. We wanted her uh, to apply for endorsement. And, and uh, the other Democrats in this race really did not seem to be doing anything at all. But we knew Sally Harrell was a real deal. She ended up actually dropping out of the race, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when we got in. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, and it's been that way uh, ever since. And, you know, a lot of other folks have done a lot of great work in this race. I, I, you know, I, I love to toot our horn, of course, but uh, it really has to be said, and it, and it has to be said that the D-trips in this race, that's also a good thing. But are we just preaching to the choir there, or are we reaching out into other communities to really expand the electorate, which is what we need to do in every single one of these races 
to actually to win. And and that uh, brings me to my next question for you, Jim, because uh, expanding the electorate, you know, Ossoff originally ran uh, on the theme of, uh, I think it was Make Trump Furious was uh, how he originally started raising money. He's backed off of that a little bit. He stopped blasting Trump quite as much on the uh, on the stump. Uh, is that a good idea? Is that a wise strategy given the unpopularity of this president? And and it sort of raises the broader question, you know, it, it, what what's more important as DFA sees it, running progressive, real progressive candidates or regaining Democratic majorities in the U.S. House and Senate next year, even if that means you need to, to back off uh, a, a little bit from uh, quite as progressive a position? Right. Well, the way we look at that is uh, we believe that real progressive candidates are the key to Democrats winning. Um, you know, Republican light does not work. Uh, real progressive candidates usually reflect the majority of values of, the, of America, particularly when it comes to issues that surround economic inequality. Uh, so uh, we think if you're a real progressive running anywhere, you've got a better shot at winning. Even in West Virginia, uh, where so, so-called red states, mm-hmm. you have a much better shot at winning if you are more like Bernie uh, than you are if you are like Joe Manchin. So, uh, 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 you know, we think that that's a pathway to victory. I want to be a little bit careful about Ossoff in this, only because... I haven't been reading his most recent statements, Mm -hmm. uh, and I was traveling a lot, so I I don't want to start making uh, uh, judgments about what their message is or not. Uh, You know, he's a young guy, he's 30 years old, who has a fairly, even at his age, a a track record of a lot of investigative uh, journalism, Mm -hmm. a lot of fights speaking truth to power, and so uh, we believe that that can carry the day, but we're certainly... Uh, going to go into where we are if this election is still going on. If he doesn't get to the 50 percent uh, uh, tomorrow, we're certainly going to go in there uh, and and look at this a little bit closer and see what needs to be done for him to win. I would add also that he is smart, I, and I totally agree with his strategy of going for it right now. Uh, I think this whole thing about the jungle primary and everything is ridiculous. Uh, he's going for the 50 percent now. I should add that his likely Republican opponent uh, is someone who is known to us, Brad, mm-hmm. uh, because it is the woman who was at the Komen Foundation and was the architect of trying to defund Planned Parenthood when she was there, who caused all that trouble, who caused the brand name of the Komen Foundation of Breast Cancer to take a dive uh, for a year or so until she finally resigned. She moved, went, then went back to uh, Georgia, uh, and she is in this race, and she is the leading Republican in the race. So even if she gets beat by 20 points, if Ossoff gets the 50 percent, he's in. If he doesn't, we're likely to be running against her. Uh, so this election is going to be for the rights of women as much as it is anything else. That's uh, that's Karen Handel you're referring to. She's the, uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, she's the former Republican, by the way, former Republican Secretary of State of uh, of Georgia. And before we move mm-hmm. to Montana, since I mentioned this in the in the intro, because uh, you don't hear people talking about this all of these years later, and I wish to hell they would, Jim. Uh, they're using these 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems across Georgia. Yeah. I mean, yep. you know, if 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 Ossoff comes in with 49.9 uh, percent of the vote on Tuesday, you're just going to have to suck it up and take it, uh, Jim, because uh, whatever those machines say are 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 the results are going to be the official results. Isn't this kind of crazy that we're 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 left with this in 2017 after all of these years knowing what we know about these you know, systems? What's so nuts about this? It's it just unbelievable. Is that 
how many countries don't have this problem, uh, how easier it is to vote in other countries, and how more, how much more integrity the election process of other countries uh, are uh, than the United States. It is incredible that we are in this stage right now, particularly, as you said, after all we've been through, and here we are with the most Byzantine election process that is designed to make this democracy as dysfunctional as possible, all in the interest of one person's parochial uh, thing, particularly the Republican Party in this case, because it happens to be mostly Republican states that are doing this. Uh, but listen, I mean, there are plenty of states. I mean, you saw what happened in New York at the primary, presidential primary, an absolute embarrassment, mm-hmm. uh, and it should be enough for the governor to have resigned uh, for that. It is absolutely unbelievable. The, the, the one that really gets me is the South Carolina primary of some years ago uh, to get a challenger for, against Jim DeMint. Uh, and uh, this guy came out of nowhere and won against a judge, and a third of the machines, yep. were, you simply couldn't figure out who voted for who, and then because they were unauditable with no paper anything. Yeah, that was the so, Al- Alvin Green race, yeah, where that guy who nobody had yeah. ever heard of became the Democratic uh, nominee for the U.S. Senate. Exactly, against uh, Judge Vic Rawls, who had yep. campaigned and run a the state, but we'll never know because, again, a third of those machines uh, were not verifiable, or the results, the voting results were not verifiable. Actually, actually, back, so, Jim, all of them were back then, and uh, all of the voting machines that were used in the race in South Carolina at that in that race, and it was Democrats in that case who there was a challenge to the Democratic Party because it was a Democratic primary, and it was the Democratic Executive Committee who said, uh, you know what, yeah, we're troubled by this, but we're not going to investigate. We're not going to go any further in it. So. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but uh, Democrats have been dropping this ball as well for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I know you're short on time, Jim, so let me jump to Montana here very quickly. Uh, interesting situation uh, developing there as well in another U.S. House special election. This to replace uh, uh, Ryan Zinke, who is now the uh, Trump's uh, interior secretary. That that race is going to be in May. And popular state of a folk singer, uh, Democratic uh, candidate Rob Quist, seems to have Republicans quite nervous in Montana as well. And I think uh, DFA, you guys have also endorsed uh, Quist's Absolutely. Quist. Absolutely, uh, one of my one of my favorite dynamics and one of my favorite candidates right now. Although I've never spoken to him, uh, this is a guy who has walked the walk all of his life. Uh, he has been to every town in Montana. He has played almost every place there is to play in the state, uh, and he has performed his work, his music, is all about economic inequality. It's all about uh, working folks, uh, working for a living, and this run for Congress is simply an extension of what he's been doing for over 40 years. Uh, and that is something that the voters get. Uh, his sincerity and his authenticity is, is without doubt uh, this isn't somebody who's got to have this job or needs to move up the political food chain. Uh, he can do this. He has good name recognition because of all of this. This is a state that believes in political reform and has a long tradition of it ever since Anaconda Cockler and a couple of other organizations, uh, corporations uh, tried to buy, basically own the state back in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want reform. They have Democratic uh, officials that have been elected statewide. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, there's no reason a person, again, without with progressive values 
can't run and win. And uh, and we're very, very excited about him. And, uh, in fact, I'm looking forward to going out there uh, late in May to try to get a couple of votes for him. He, he uh, in support, uh, over to, among other things, since you sort of brought this up obliquely here, he, he supports overturning Citizens United, which I understand is actually a popular position uh, even among Republicans in Montana, where they had this yep. uh, terrible problem with, with uh, corporate corruption. Uh, and and they're none too happy uh, Republicans in that state about Citizens United. Uh, he's raising a lot of money as well with average donations. I think about forty dollars a piece. Sort of mm-hmm. uh, small donor Bernie Sanders style again. Are are the National Democrats uh, in in this case uh, so far? As you know, are they doing enough in Montana, or is this going to catch them by surprise as well, like Kansas? Well, I can't catch them by surprise because we've been making a big stick about that, and we believe that they should be supporting this candidate uh, a lot more than they are right now. Uh, but my guess is that they're going to come around uh, on this pretty soon because there's no question that he's going to be running a good campaign. He already is. Uh, there's no question that he has a very good competitive, uh, credible shot at winning. Uh, and uh, But, you know, we'll, we'll see what they decide to do. Let's not forget, there were 32 uncontested seats yeah. In the U.S. House of Representatives in 2016, uh, that is not exactly the sign of a party that's building a full slate, uh, but that's changing right now, and for the better, Brad. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we hope that they'll be in there uh, for Rob Quist because he's a great candidate and we think he can win. And, look, I just assume make these folks look good uh, that rather than start railing against him. So I think they'll see the error of their ways and be in there soon. Well, and that's my last question as you go. Long time uh, from 2018, of course. A lot could happen, so I'm not going to ask you to handicap Democratic odds yet for, for that race. But but your brother, Howard Dean, well, he was famous for his 50-state strategy to compete Pete in every state when he ran the DNC, uh, despite what happened last week in Kansas, or maybe even because of it, do you get any sense now that national Democrats are truly going to embrace a similar 50-state strategy uh, next year? they got new leadership under Tom Perez. Uh, are they going to embrace that? And by the way, do they even have the resources to do so, even if they wanted to, Jim Dean? Okay, well, the good news is, A, I think they're going to embrace it. I'm certain that they're going to embrace it. And, B, I think they can raise the money to do it because almost everybody who I've ever talked to who is a donor to the DNC appreciates this kind of outreach. The bad news, because there is some, is some of these state parties, frankly, should not be resourced right now, either because they've turned into political action committees for one candidate, their mm. governor, uh, or because they simply have been excluding uh, supporters of other candidates or people from other political communities outside of their own little fiefdom. And we yeah. have this problem right now, and we need to start coming to grips with it. And there's not a lot the DNC can do. They can't just fire the chair of a state party that's just been blowing it. Uh, but we have those folks out there, and that needs to change in a hurry. The other thing is, and this is where Keith Ellison comes in and is so incredibly helpful, um, is that in, in addition to resourcing the state parties, it really is time to reach out to the groups of people who do not trust parties, who don't trust the political process, but yet have the same values that all of us have. Uh, we can't blame them for not trusting the Democratic Party. We don't blame them for not trusting the political process the way that it's been playing out, for one reason or another. Uh, but we've got folks like Keith, who is so good, uh, sorry, Congressman Ellison, who is so good at reaching out to folks and talking about the work that they're already doing in justice. 
but making sure that they can add the electoral piece to this uh, to, because they go together. So uh, there's a lot of folks out there that we're really interested in as well uh, and elevating, not because they're political action committees, but because they're fighting for one kind of justice or another, and they can be there next year if the party will have them, if the party will cede power to a new generation of leaders. And if we get start getting into that territory, we are expanding the electorate, and that's when we have a chance to win and do the things that they want, uh, especially if we can make some good things happen this year. Jim Dean, longtime chair of the progressive grassroots group DemocracyForAmerica.com. You can follow them on the Twitters at DFA Action. Uh, and uh, Jim, we'll leave it with that, I guess, cautiously optimistic note for progressives next year. Uh, and uh, boy, uh, we could use some optimism uh, between now and next year. And of course, we'll see what happens in Georgia on Tuesday. Good talking to you again, sir. It's been too long. I hope to do it again in the near future, Jim. Hey, I look forward to it, Brad. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with uh, with more Bradcast. Uh, you know what else has been happening all weekend long, Desi Doyen? What? Uh, oil has been spewing out all over the place. Yeah, I heard about in that. In Alaska, we'll uh, we'll hit that and see if uh, they've finally been able to shut off this leak up in Alaska. Right after this break, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Way up Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The rush it continues to be on in uh, Alaska, at least when it comes to oil and natural gas, uh, a subsidiary of Desi Doyen's old friends uh, at BP. <laughs> Uh, reported a crude oil spill on Alaska's North Slope. This broke late Saturday. BP Exploration Alaska told state regulators on Friday that oil was spraying from a well and and possibly onto the snow-covered tundra up there, way up north in Alaska. The Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation said on Friday night that the spill was ongoing and the volume of crude was unknown at the time. Uh, and apparently, uh, three days later, or wherever we are now, uh, the volume is still unknown. There was an uncontrolled natural gas leak, this according to BP, an uncontrolled natural gas leak that was accompanied by the spray of crude oil. So there was both natural gas uh, and crude oil uh, coming out of this uh, yes. coming out of this well. So, so there's a couple things that were at work here. One of the reasons why they could not shut in this well and close off this spill is because 
in Alaska when they have all this natural gas, which naturally occurs at the top of an oil deposit. Mm -hmm. They can't put it anywhere. They don't usually flare it off, but they don't have pipelines at the time right now to get rid of it. So what they do is that they pump it back into old, empty reservoirs. And so when they have something like that, and then they'll use it as well uh, for what they call oil recovery, enhanced oil recovery, where they'll pump this natural gas into a well to help push out the old well, all the old oil that's sitting at the bottom. So what they have is this gigantic natural gas deposit. They don't know how much is in there, but that's also what came blowing out from this oil well blowout, very similar uh, to the BP oil disaster in the Gulf Gulf. when it was natural gas that kicked the oil well and broke the system and so that the natural gas and the oil spewed out all at once. As we learned over the weekend, uh, so we, I mean, we just found out about this. It was late Friday. Right. uh, We don't know how long it was actually going on, by the way, before they discovered it on Friday. Right. We know that they reported it, discovered it, and reported it on On Friday. Friday, And it was still not under control. The well was still uh, spewing oil on Saturday afternoon. Responders were fighting sub-freezing temperatures and wind gusts up to 38 miles per hour, so they were having trouble getting there at all. Yeah, and then they had to be evacuated because they realized that this natural gas that's coming out, this this spewing that Mm -hmm. is still ongoing, is an explosion risk. So they had to evacuate the workers. Other workers also said that, uh, according to their measurements, it looks like the area around the well has actually lifted three to four feet. The the like a area bubble has underneath lifted it. as the oil uh, as, as the, the oil natural pressure. gas and the oil pressure is increasing underneath that wellhead, it could blow. So this was going on Friday and then Saturday. Saturday night, they said they were uh, they were connecting hoses to valves to allow pressure in the well to be reduced. According to a statement from the uh, State Conservation Department and the U.S. EPA, remember them? (laughs) Uh, And then on Sunday, uh, a statement said that pressure in the well uh, had been monitored overnight and excess pressure had been released from the well. But efforts to get the well under control were being hampered by by damage to a well pressure gauge. The Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation said in a uh, in their situation report as of Saturday, and uh, you're right, Desi Washington Post uh, cites the Macondo well in the Gulf of Mexico, which blew out and caused the largest oil spill in U.S. history. Um, and uh, they've uh, BP has been responding to questions about the uh, about the well in in the in Alaska, but information was limited. There is no estimate still about the volumes of uh, natural gas and oil that has been released. The well was the well was venting, they say, natural gas and sending a spray of crude oil up into the air. Um, and that uh, they hope that most of the oil landed on the drilling pad. And I yeah. guess that's the, is that like a concrete layer? It's where the mostly actual... gravel and concrete, okay. yes. And that's the actual place where they drive the equipment onto and where the, the well pad itself. They do seem to say that they think that most of the oil has been contained to just the well pad area. There was two separate leaks in, in this Natural uh, gas uh, leaks, yes. Yeah, the top leak was misting oil in conjunction with releasing natural gas, according like to the Aerosolized yeah. oil is what it was, essentially. Uh, so uh, this was, uh, well, I love BP is in the process of shutting in a well at the Prudhoe Bay oil field that experienced an unplanned release of hydrocarbon. <laughs> well, they're testing out a new storage area. It's called the grounds. Yeah, I guess. Uh, this is about five miles from the airport at Dead Horse, Alaska. 
uh, remote town in northern Alaska that people who watch the uh, the Discovery Channel may be familiar with. Uh, Ice road the, truckers. Yeah, exactly. They, they deliver up to Dead Horse, Alaska. Yes. It's the service center for the entire Prudhoe Bay oil field, which is the largest ever discovery of, of oil in the U.S. Uh, we have word now on... Monday that the oil well has finally been successfully plugged three days after the leaks uh, were discovered. Leaks, two leaks uh, were discovered. That, according to private and government responders, says AP, BP Exploration Alaska confirmed on Monday that it was success that it has now successfully killed those leaks overnight. The method of plugging the well, however, was not immediately announced. So unclear what exactly Unclear exactly uh, what what they did, but at least it only took three days as opposed to how long was the the leak in the Gulf of Mexico? Uh, I think it was something like 180 days, you know, around the order of five months from uh, April to October. So this was in in freezing weather up on a mountain in Alaska, but at least it wasn't a mile and a half underwater. On Earth Day. (laughs) That's right. That's when that blow blew. That's when the uh, Macondo well in the Gulf of Mexico blew. It blew and it and and exploded the drilling rig on Earth Day itself. And of course, we do have another Earth Day coming Coming up up in about a week. So you know, BP they just they just like Earth Day, I guess. It's because they're out celebrating for Earth Day. (laughs) They forget to check their pressure gauges, apparently. And just one thing I want to add is that this natural gas leak. Remember, methane is way more powerful at warming as a greenhouse gas at warming the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And that's the nat- that comes from the natural gas that, that was released the in this, gas. Uh, and that is also a regulation that Obama had had been trying to put in place <laughs> yes. to keep these uh, these natural gas, these methane flare-offs and burn-offs the, that right. they do. Leaking and flaring because they don't want to pay for the royalties and they don't want to pipe it anywhere else, so they flare it off and they burn it. If they don't burn it, then it, it gets leaked directly out into the atmosphere as methane, and it's a way more potent greenhouse gas. But... Trump and Scott Pruitt have said they're going to do away with that regulation. Yes, they have tried to do do away. At this point, they have withdrawn it for revision. By the way, in 2006, a BP oil pipeline in Prudhoe Bay uh, ruptured, spilled 215,000 gallons of crude oil over the North Slope. So it's not the first time the otherwise pristine North Slope has been sullied by oil by BP. They were fined $255 million by the state of Alaska for negligence in their maintenance of Prudhoe Bay pipelines. Um, but apparently that wasn't incentive enough to keep whatever happened uh, from happening on this uh, this pressure gauge uh, in, in Alaska. And uh, by the way, I think this is uh, the same company, if I'm not mistaken, when I, I read when this originally came out, I haven't been able to find the story since, but I think this uh, company will also be operating the Dakota Access Pipeline in case that gives you any more confidence in uh, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong yeah. in, uh, in, in southern North Dakota or northern South Dakota. Southern North Dakota on there the Dakota Access Pipeline. All yep. right, uh, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Jim Dean of democracyforamerica.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it, like all of our others, for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site like iTunes. Uh, wherever you get it from, uh, if you download it, please leave us a good review. Makes it a little easier for everyone else to find us as well. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. 
and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where I hope you'll find and share us far and wide as well. I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>